Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. We've reached episode 42, which, as I'm sure you all know, is the answer to life, the universe and everything. And we're delighted to say that our special guest today is a producer, writer, presenter, show creator, all titles that barely begin to do justice to his contribution to some of the greatest British comedy shows of the last four decades. Please welcome John Lloyd. Hello, Dave and James. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for coming. Lovely to have you here. Um, so, yes, uh, amazingly, uh, I, I thought we'd start by talking about the fact that um, this year, 2017, is the 40th anniversary of uh, the start of News Quiz on Radio 4. Uh, and quite a lot has changed in comedy in that time, but News Quiz has pretty much stayed the same. And the original producer, creator, John, you were, you were that person. Can you, can you tell us about when you, uh, how, how you came up with the idea, really? Well, um, okay, so there's two things there. First of all, that um, my entire life has been a series of disasters that I've managed to... Uh, escape uh, by the skin of my teeth uh, to survive for another disaster yet to come. So the news quiz started with a disaster, really. Um, right. Nicholas Parsons, who I knew well and still know well, uh, 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 came to me because I was the producer of Just a Minute at the time. Right. And so I got these two guys from a school in Hampstead who are very bright, and they've got an idea for a panel show. I said, okay, what is it? He said, well, it's about the news. It's sort of all about the silly stories behind the news. Uh, the little things, you know, uh, it must be true, I read it in the papers, kind of things. Um, and it's called Keep Taking the Tabloids. And I thought, well, that's quite funny. Good title. Yeah. title. Yeah. <laughs> so we did the pilots with these two chaps, and, uh, and Giles Brandreth was one of the panellists, I remember. Mm. Uh, and it didn't work for mm. some reason. I, it, I think because the stories were sort of already funny, so it's uh, hard to yeah. be funny... Mm about a funny thing. Yes. Mm. A bit like current politics, you know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> it's hard to beat, isn't it? It's yeah. interesting because right now there's a show, uh, News Jack, which is, I guess, the, you know, the, the, the latest uh, show that the BBC is making for, uh, with new writers. Mm. and uh, Nish Kumar. Uh, yeah, it's actually a new presenter now. They've got uh, Angela Barnes is starting okay. uh, this week. Um, but that's um, one of the pieces of advice they give to the new writers is... Uh, don't choose stories that are already funny mm. because it's That's hard really to make them funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well, so yeah. It, it didn't work. And I was slightly, you know, it was all right. But uh, I took it to my boss and he said, well, it doesn't really work, John. But I tell you what, the basic core idea of a quiz about the news is a very good one. And I don't think they'd ever done it on radio before. There was Quiz of the Week on television, which I'd never actually heard of, that Ned Sherin produced in the kind of 60s, I think. Um, but anyway, so started again, and, um, and that's the way that broadcasting used to work. A pilot was there not necessarily to show how brilliant it was, but to see where the flaws were, and then very often you could yeah. use that to you know, change your course a bit. So I sat down and started from first principles, then a quiz about the news. So the news is about facts, so let's not have a silly title, let's have a straight title, the news quiz. So that, that's the first step. And I thought, well, you ought to have people who know what they're talking about, so let's have journalists. And so I thought, who, who, what kind of journalists do I know? So I thought, Richard Ingram's a private eye. I mean, it's a kind of journalism. Well, it is journalism. Alan Corran, who's editor of Punch, so I started there, and Clive James, who was then television critic. Wow. 
and so I thought well that sounds like a great thing yes, amazing that's half an hour yeah. that I'd like yeah. to be part of yeah. although Clive was famous on television Richard mm. and Alan had done very little broadcasting really and certainly not in a panel game context mm. so that was the, the shape of it so those three guys uh, and, and and then the fourth uh, journalist was Barry Norman you know right. sort of uh, again from a sports journalist background mm. a film critic and then there was always one open slot, so we'd have Tom Petrie, the picture editor of the Sun, or we'd have um, mm. uh, that that person didn't have to be a journalist, so it could be you know Sheila Hancock or uh, or whomsoever. So you would have, have this very strong basic panel with with a, a, a little special uh, flavour all the time. And uh, so I put this thing together with Danny Greenstone, who was then on attachment from his very sudden died recently, but. Mm. Very bright young guy from the BBC Music Library is on attachment, and so we had used to have a music round, and Danny used to do that, and I wrote the whole script myself because that's what you did. You know, there was very little money in radio, and uh, so I used to get up at five every day and read all the papers, and then uh, on the day of transmission, I, I, well, I'd, I'd not get up at five every day, but I'd read all the papers every day and cut out the, the funny bits, you mm. know, the little much funnier, much bigger than newspapers were in those days. Mm. And so on the day of the transmission, which is Wednesday, I used to get up at five, go to the news agent, get the papers, read, see if there's anything really topical, write the script in the morning, get it, wow. you know, uh, tight. I, I, I worked on News Quiz for a few years, and that's a big script. That's a lot of, that's yeah. a lot of writing. There were 16 uh, topics. I don't know if that's, that was the case with you. but uh, So you yes. had to have half a dozen jokes uh, as well as a paragraph explaining the story and yeah. you then have to write a load of jokes well we didn't what, why, the main writing effort was trying to think of cryptic questions yeah. so you, yeah. it wasn't a dolly drop that the mm. news quiz often is it's like a here's the thing it's obvious what the story is and then uh, then the person's got their set piece on that mm. um, thing and the other thing we gave them no notice mm. So you'd think of a complex question, part of the fun of it was to try and work out what the question was about. Yes. Mm. And then when they got it, they started bantering. But the script, Barry Norman didn't really have, it was an intro, mm. just hello. And, mm. and then it was peppered with these very good news cuttings. Mm. And there were many more of them, you know, because the Grawny ad, as they used to say, there were always misprints. Mm. Uh, and we used to, eventually, as it got popular, the, the listenership sent in stuff. So that was a very strong, and there were, there were buttons. We didn't, Again, we didn't ask the presenter to be funny per se. Mm, mm. The humour arose out of the conversation, very similar mm. to QI, in fact. Mm. I often think I've only had one idea in my life, which is to take right. an apparently boring subject and make it funny and interesting. <laughs> so, and, uh, and it's the best pilot, actually, I've ever made, apart from QI, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. It was obvious right from the start. It was a really good show. Mm-hmm. The first six shows got brilliant ratings. And similarly with QI, it, mm-hmm. once we'd made the pun, it was obvious to everybody that something fresh had happened. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it rated straight away. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a kind of, I mean, this was a, quite an amazing time, really, for uh, when BBC Radio and a lot of the people, I guess, that you were who were producers at the time, people like, like was uh, Griff Rhys Jones the producer? Yeah, it just started. It, it, Jimmy was, a, and it was a, a very odd, um, the whole thing's very unexperienced because I went to university to be a lawyer and didn't get on with the law at all and <laughs> realised I'd made a horrible mistake. So I spent three years 
working very hard, but nothing to do with the law. So university politics, university journalism, straight acting, and eventually comedy. And so when I left with the worst law degree in the history of the Cambridge Law Faculty, I think I passed by one mark. <laughs> um, I thought I'd give myself a year and see whether I can, um, you know, guess anywhere. And so uh, I was in the footlights, and uh, they did a BBC Radio did a one-off from that, and then a second one-off, and then they gave us a series. So I, I was actually a writer-performer on the radio before I was a producer. Right. And because I was around a lot writing the script for that with John Cantor and uh, Griff Rees Jones mm-hmm. and a couple of other people um, that the listenership won't, won't know. Um, John's just had a series on Radio 4, I think. Is yeah. Diaries of uh, famous uh, historical diaries. I think oh, yeah. Right. Like yeah. Boswell and people. They're, they're obviously it, it sounds like up. the expectation when you were producing was, though, that the producer would, would, would write links and... You know, and would, well, I don't have much more of a comedy attitude. The funny thing is about a lot of work that I've done is I don't really know how the people work because I've only ever really been a producer, right? Except for right at the beginning, so I don't know how the people do it. Hmm. And similarly, when I started directing, I've never I watched directors that I've hired, but I don't really know how the people operate. And I often think I must go on a course to learn how to do this. <laughs> Because, um, anyway, so I was in this show called Oh No, It Isn't, which actually ran after I became a producer in the beginning of 1974. Um, But I come from a writing background. That's what I spent the last two years at Cambridge doing, is staying up till three in the morning writing sketches. Mm -hmm. And I was hooked on it. And so that thing of, you know, once a sort of... um, I mean, there's two kinds of producers, aren't there? There are organised producers and there are ideas producers, essentially. And some people have both, but mm. I'm definitely in the latter category. So and when, when we started the news quiz, um, it was just easier to do it yourself rather than hiring. I didn't consider it a writing job, really. I considered it a kind mm. of, you know, I knew that these guys were going to be great talkers. So all I had to do is give them something to talk about. Yeah. Mm. Again, very similar to QI. So it's a research job, you know. Yeah. It sounds like I've, I've heard you in other interviews talk about getting out of the way. Yeah. And it feels have like you? very, you very early on, research. very early on, you, you, it sounds like you'd already subconsciously spotted that so that you were writing a script not necessarily to be funny, funny in its own right, but to allow these great people just to do what they do. It un- that's definitely unconscious, James. Mm. I mean, now I've got the philosophy and the theory of it down pat, and I think there ought to be a religion. In fact, there in my unwritten novel, and we all got one, there's a religion called absenteeism, of which the, uh, the there's only one commandment, which is get out of the way. <laughs> and, and I believe this absolutely to my core, which is a, as a parent, for example, mm-hmm. which is a harder job than being a producer, uh, quite a long way, is get out of the way, which is mm. allow the children to become, don't mould them, don't push them, don't criticise them, yeah. just love them and, and, and let them be, and mm. that's the way to do it. Similarly in production, I often say the job of the director or producer is to disappear. When you watch a movie... Anyone who says, oh, that was very well produced, wasn't it? They obviously haven't been <laughs> yes, enjoying right. the story very It's likely to be allowed. Yeah. And certainly directing that's very well directed. Yeah. 
after you see a film, all you should be talking about is the characters and the ideas and yeah. the story. Because mm-hmm. if you can tell it's well directed, it's not well directed mm-hmm. because you know the director's showing off. Yeah. Um, uh, as a director, I often used to think cut cut the best shot in the film because it's the one that goes oh my god look at that shot yeah and you often hear that said about writing in general is kill your darlings yeah. you know? mm. if it looks like writing it's not good writing yeah, yeah. something we try and uh, tell the and I think with some success um, at QI is we have what's called a, um, a style of style that actually all great writing is the same somebody once said all the great aphorists sound as if they knew each other very well. <laughs> and a great one-liner, whether it's George Carlin or, mm. you know, um, Chick Murray or uh, David Mitchell, yeah. is like, it's so perfect, it's poetry, isn't it? Yeah. It's so pure, so exact. Yeah, yeah, Chesterton yeah. or something, it's like, yeah. you can't tell. Is that Chesterton, is that C.S. Lewis, or is that George yes, Carlin? Or, or Montaigne, or, <laughs> you know... Yes. Uh, Socrates, yeah. you know. Um, that, so that's what I'm after all the time, and I believe... Another principle of um, things is that uh, creativity is a form of archaeology, not a form of um, creation. It's more like gardening than it is like um, manufacturing. Okay. So thing how is, does that work? Well, it's like, again, same thing. How do you be a good gardener? Mm. You know, pay attention, love the plants, mm. and let them be. You don't go to a tree. No, you... You, you're nearly three and you're behaving like a ridiculous one-year-old tree. Yeah. The things parents say are completely absurd. But uh, it, in terms of writing, though, is that, that there is a, a balance, isn't there, between, um, on, on the one hand, uh, I, I remember this thing that Dennis Norden said, I think I mentioned it on here before, about writing with a, a writing partner. You've got yeah. uh, the reason you do it, one to type and one to look out the window. Yeah. And that's the... Very uh, good. Dennis, what a great guy. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, There's a, that's a top line, isn't yeah. it? I mean, and, um, yeah, no, I think it, it's... But I the, just going back to the archaeology mm, thing is yeah. that it's my... I'm a Platonist in this way, which is it's like the theory of forms, is that you're mm. looking for something that's already there. Mm. Mm. So uh, it's very easily described in QI, which is we go into the deserts of dullness and we dig and we dig and we dig and we dig and eventually we find a nugget, yeah. a sapphire, a ruby right. or a, you know, mm. and, and the, that, that's what we do. And similarly with writing is you're looking for, it's like metal detecting, you're looking for the line that already exists in some way because all three of us have had that feeling yeah. when you hit the spot, mm. when you're in the slot, you go... That is correct. It's not a question yeah. of a matter of opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Great comedy is it's mm. correct, and I believe yeah. as correct as mathematics. Mm. We just haven't learned how to notate it yet. Mm. There's a famous story about um, two old uh, Jewish comedians sitting in a car in New York, and a young writer goes past, and one's saying, "No, no, there's too many words after chop liver." <laughs> Like, you know, you, there's that sort of meter in your in your yeah. soul, isn't there, where you suddenly go, oh, that's it, that's yeah. it. Yeah. That wonderful sense of, and it is a sense, isn't it, of discovery. Yeah. Not, and it is one of modesty, of humility. I always find that when you've do, done work really well, it's a sense that I didn't really do that. I sort of channeled it in some way. You, yeah. you hear this a lot with musicians. Mm. My son is a songwriter, calls them given songs. Mm. You know, he, he writes very good songs. But some of them are, oh, 
Yes, that's I'm, come I mean, from that's come from the truth. You know? Paul McCartney had that with yesterday. Yes, didn't he? famously. Yeah, yeah but you, like, you'll hear Noel Gallagher. Well, where did this one come from? Who, yeah. Who's this? No, that's you. Yeah. No, there's no way this. No, song no, has no Noel Gallagher says that. You know, he believes yeah. there's a big man in the sky, and you just he's dropping tunes, and all you have to do is pick them up. Yeah. Elton John says that if he hasn't got the song in ten minutes, he's a bother. Wow. So, so there's something going on, and it's something. This is mm-hmm. what interests me about comedy these days is not um, it, it, comedy per se, but how comedy is an outcrop of a bigger connected truth. That comedy is mm. a you know provisional wing of art, and yeah, uh, right. it's one of the great mysteries of how why things are funny. Do you, so, do you feel therefore that because comedy has become more of an industry in that sense, that we're sort of slightly bat- battery farming comedy? And that actually produces something that's really not very uh, pleasant, or you know, it's sort of it isn't as nourishing in some way, or or do you think? Because it feels like you've got such a ground up view of comedy, but literally start well, it starts beneath the ground, and you're. If do you, are you sensing therefore that this is one of the reasons why you know why some comedy doesn't work is because it feels too contrived or too. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, what I, I'm it's saying. For, I know. <laughs> and, um, but I, I know what you're grasping at because um, I often think there's two kinds of let's talk about programs in general, not rather than specifically comedy. But there are two kinds of programs: those that matter and those that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, and very hard to say what that means because meaning in itself, when you say does life have meaning, what's the meaning of meaning? It's a, mm-hmm. very hard to grasp. But I think if we ever understood what we meant by meaning, we'd yeah. understand what the meaning of life was. Yeah. So. What does it mean to say that something matters? I don't know, but you damn well know it. You, you do, see it, you don't know. you? think that's one of those, and that one isn't. Look, it's fine. So there are plenty of programs that don't matter, that are really good. Some of them rate a lot, some of them win prizes, some of them are very watchable. And there are programs that uh, do matter, which are flawed and uh, you know sometimes uncomfortable and sometimes you know, not perfect every week, but nonetheless, and, and that, what we're getting at there, I've no idea, but that I'm in the I want to make programs that matter, even though I don't know what that means. Mm. I haven't got time, I find work so difficult. I haven't got time to do something that's mediocre. I have done plenty of mediocre things, but that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do something which is that's the real deal, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I think we're all kind of grasping over that. Um, for me, comedy and writing in general is not a means of making a living. It's an accident that I make a living and it's I do it because I really care about it and believe in it and I want to make a difference. I want to bring joy to people. I want to bring, uh, you know, it's an accident that I'm in comedy. I'm you know, meant to be a, a crusading defence barrister. I could have easily been a journalist, I think. But what I like to do is find great ideas and mm. give them to people. That's what I want mm. to do. I was, I was wondering, just that, that hearing those, what you were saying, those kind of very big questions and what's the meaning of life and meaning of meaning, I was wondering if those were the sort of conversations you were, you and Douglas Adams were having in the early 70s. Yeah. That, 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 uh, I'm, I'm curious to know how something like Hitchhiker's Guide came out of Definitely, that. we had... We, we, we knew each other briefly at Cambridge, not at all well, but we got to know each other, I can't even remember how, afterwards when he came down, he's a year younger than, or well, six months younger than me, so a year behind in the academic year. And we did exactly that. We, uh, we met, we started talking, we never stopped talking, and we used to go out for 
you know, a hamburger, or we would, you know, stay up all night, we'd go to the pub, and we would talk continually about everything, mainly because we're both science fiction nuts. And, of course, good science fiction is concerned with questions of meaning and, you know, mm. truth and existence. Mm. And, uh, and we, we talked about everything, and it was a very undidactic and open conversation of queering things. We'd have lots... I remember having a fierce argument with Douglas about whether it would be possible to build... Uh, a lift, an elevator that went to um, a satellite. That why do we have to have this escape velocity thing? Where do you have a massive engine mm. to escape the pull of the Earth? But a lift can do it, so it can be slower. Mm. Why can't you just chunter up? Don't say, well, that'd be completely impossible because they have them now. They have them. Yeah. certainly theoretically possible. Mm, yeah. You just need a wire, which is mm. we haven't quite got the metal, which is light and strong enough. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely theoretically possible, and. and uh, so those kind of things. And also, although Douglas uh, wasn't then, but became a militant atheist, you know, he was a very committed atheist in the Dawkins mould, a very good friend of Richard's, because Lala, Richard's wife, um, was the Doctor Who um, girl, assistant, when, oh, when Douglas was script editor. So he got oh, to know her, and then she married Richard, and so they were all very close. Hmm. So he was card-carrying atheists and used to get quite touchy about it. But in those days he wasn't. And when you look at his work, you see, well, yeah, I know technically he's an atheist, but it's full of stuff about gods and, you know, mm. alien beings and so on. Mm. It's like in, in his creative life, he wasn't really an atheist. I mean, the, in Dirk Gently, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, mm. you know, the Norse gods crashing around and so mm. forth. Mm. But there's also a feeling, like the improbability drive, and those sorts of ideas, there's a feeling through a lot of it of... Um, fate and and destiny and some kind of order throughout the universe, which is there's, yeah. There's there's lots of stuff happening and being blown up and 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 funny ideas around it, but it just feels like there's this there's this philosophical truth that underlies it all. Definitely, and but things we were because we were young, and you know had all our faculties and were having fun and drank a lot and mm. uh, larked around. That Douglas asked all the big questions in Hitchhiker if you look for mm. them. Mm. much as Plato asked all the big questions in a way um, but we didn't have any of the answers mm. so we would have an in, extraordinarily clever and interesting idea and would end with a joke mm. you know, and, and nobody likes a smart ass mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, the, the thing is what I feel about um, atheism for what it's worth is when most people say they're atheists, what they mean is they're against organised religion because it doesn't stand up to much scrutiny, as as expressed by, uh, you know, across all the all the various sects and uh, and faiths. Um, but all I ask of people, and I, after fifteen years of QI, it's not too much to ask, is to agree that there is much more to everything than meets the eye. Mm. That's my yeah. position. It's mm-hmm. not. I'm not a I'm not a religious person, certainly not a conventional one, but that is unquestionable. Socrates used to say that there is a difference between right opinion and knowledge is something that I would particularly assert that I know. Mm. And I can say that I am certain, beyond Mm. anything else, that things are much more complicated and there are hidden patterns and Mm. things that that we know nothing of. There's no no doubt gravity is one of them, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... uh, Part of this unwritten novel that I've been struggling with for 20 years, or it's actually a series of novels, <laughs> part of the ambition is to uh, 
write the book that Douglas and I would have written if he was still alive. Right. Mm, yeah. Having come to the conclusion and thought about it a lot, you can still have the jokes, but actually it can end up in insights and sort of mm. take away ideas that people can live by. Mm. Because, you know, Hitchhiker's very funny and, you know, the fact that it's got such traction, James, mm. you know, that people treat it as holy writ in some quarters means that it must be getting at something deeper than the fact that Zayfold B. Brox is a funny character, you know. Mm. Yes, and it's not, yes, and there's more, there's more, because they're also, on top of everything else, it's just a very funny name, yeah. but there's, but there's so much going on underneath. Um, was, there any, was there any particular, because for me, from a comedy point of view, when I first came across it, I then just thought to myself, I mean, I'm, sort of, I'm 41, so I'm slightly um, behind on that, but I did sort of think, this doesn't sound like it was like anything that came before it. No. I guess, I guess it was part of a. I guess there was a science fiction genre that was has never struck me as particularly humorous in the past. Up until you know, sort of mm. Olsen Wells, uh, not Olsen Wells, H. G. Wells's Time Machine was pretty pretty po faced, and but it feels like that that was influenced by bits and pieces like that. Maybe I. I uh, well, I, I think lots of. It was Vonnegut, I would yeah. say. It was a right. Massive. Was, in fact, his first yeah. draft of Hitchhiker yeah. was very... I said, it's too like uh, Vonnegut. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. have to find so, your own voice. There were a few moments, I think, in the, that, that, and... Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I was kind of... I was at the age... I was just discovering mm. Vonnegut. I was discovering Vonnegut. Um, I guess there's also... At, at the time that the show was happening, and I remember that, and, and, and I, I, was a, I was quite a big radio fan, and I liked, I'd heard stuff like Weekending mm. when I was a teenager and things. And then this thing came on the radio, and it was just... It, 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 it was the first time I'd heard something that actually I... Oh, this is this is for me. Radio's weekending. All these things. They're all funny and they're all for grown ups and things. Mm. This this is absolutely mm. not like anything I've ever heard in my life. And mm. it's it's for me. It's aimed at me. There's a feeling also of um of Catch Twenty Two about it. It's not obviously not really much to do with war, but the, the, with Catch Twenty Two, there's this infused self of wistful self defeatingness. Yeah. isn't there? Of <laughs> and I just love that that comes through in yeah. Hitchhikers. That there's an awful lot of in a good way, of, of, of shrugging. Of, you know, here is an intractable problem, mm. and here is how we live with that problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, people are asking questions, and the answer is, is stop being a smart-ass, that sort of thing. I think I, that's what I love about that. Mm. It's, uh, it's, got extra- it's, just, it's extraordinary. And I guess, it, looking back on it now, because it has been so influential in so many things, for example, Red Dwarf mm. could simply not have existed, and Red Dwarf is, was on when I was sort of consuming comedy age 12, mm. you then sort of realise that, oh, this is sort of hitchhikers, isn't it? It's, it's all, and becomes so, um, it's, like, it's like now, Paul McCartney, Paul So is, is now measured by the standard of the Beatles. Yeah. He sort of hung himself by his own, he's like, well, I'm still not as good as the Beatles. Well, what the hell as good as the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's all become this extraordinary thing, yeah. which, which uh, is just infused in so many things. You look back on it; it's it's the most extraordinary, extraordinary achievement. Um, how how so? Your involvement with it for, for the was it for the first series? Um, yeah, was yeah. Very much well, uh, as as you may have um, read, I've never made any secret of it. But um, Doug and I were best friends. We had shared. I don't think at the time it happened. We were still living together. We we shared a flat in uh, in West Hampstead together, and then I I was 
my girlfriend, uh, it was a bit too small for the three of us, so we moved to a, uh, a rented house in Roehampton. Mm. The three of us hang out together, had fantastic fun, and Douglas was really struggling to make a living. You know, mm. He'd made a pilot with Graham Chapman that wasn't picked up, and he'd had bit parts in Monty Python, and he was trying to write for things like Weekending, mm. but he wasn't very good at adapting to other people's style. He had to do his own thing. Mm. And then out of a blue sky, he was actually on the point of giving up and going to become a shipbroker in Hong Kong, which Jeffrey Perkins had been before he became a radio producer. He tried out shipbroking, and Douglas had heard it was good fun. So he was literally going to go and give up. And then he got this pilot for Hitchhiker, and, and then he was away. But Douglas was... Um, you, you read the famous thing about, I love deadlines, I love the sound of them washing by, you know? <laughs> which is a very funny joke, but it mm. wasn't funny when he had them. He it's suffered amazing. terribly from it mm. and was got, got into terrible panics mm. and depressions. and So he spent the first, after they'd got the series, 10 months writing the first four episodes and then got stuck and realised he wasn't going to, mm. he wasn't going to be able to finish. And they were literally... He would be sitting in a back room in the Paris studios um, typing the next scene as they were recording it out front, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, so it was uh, slow. And so he, he got stuck and he asked me to help. And and he said, you know, of course, if there's another series, I'm sure there won't be. Because mm -hmm. we had no idea what we were doing. It was, it was very interesting. But nobody had any idea it was going to be so huge. Yeah. You can't, he you said, if it's a second series, mm. let's do it together. And that was obvious because we'd written loads of things together mm. with very little success, apart from Dr. Snuggles, the very interesting cartoon series with Peter Ustinov. We'd mm. done a couple of those, but and a few one-liners. Oh, right. Mm. Huh. Uh, moonlighting in the evenings in, in 16 Langham Street. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, and we knocked off the last two episodes literally in three weeks it was fantastic fun we laughed a lot mm. and when the series went out improbably it was immediately successful they were Douglas came in uh, you know because of wonderful naivety he came into to the office in in, in, in any reviews in the papers and everyone said Douglas this is radio once a month Gillian Reynolds does a roundup. you're lucky if you get mentioned every three or four years <laughs> and blow me down there were reviews in the national papers in the Times and things saying what an amazing thing it's what I was saying earlier when something's genuinely fresh and original yeah. people usually recognise it straight away you know for example Darwin's um, origin of species was not howled down by a lot of religious, fundament, religious fundamentalists religious fundamentalists nearly everyone thought this is amazing this is so neat I yeah. wish I'd thought of that before yeah. mm -hmm. and even quite religious people didn't see that that meant you couldn't go to church anymore mm -hmm. and Hitchhiker's so it has a resonance you know the young ones when it started mm -hmm. it was like every other, you know it's not like anything else it, you know people in their 50s shouldn't have liked it but they did they yeah. recognised it as mm -hmm. being yeah. truthful so anyway we were immediately fated by publishers we were four publishers mm. I think took us out to lunch and then I got this terrible letter from Douglas who had the next office to me saying I think it would be better if I did it on my own thanks for your help and I was very very upset indeed I think with some degree of justification I was yeah. very very hurt and very angry and he couldn't understand why right um, uh, but anyway so um, oh, no, no. there it is and, and, and actually many years since I've thought, I've of course been fantastically grateful for that, 
because otherwise that's all I'd have done. Yes. You know, I would have been known as the other one, you know, the, the mm. Douglas's bitch, the guy who, you know, he looked out the window and I did the typing. That, um, right. It was that kind of relationship. Right. You know, he's the very imaginative, wildly yes. crazy mm. one and disorganised. So I'm the, the comedy cleaning lady tidying up the bits and putting an end on, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, you know, I've done so many different things in my working life and nearly all of them have been a direct result of a disaster you know mm, right. of somebody deciding they had enough of me or it and and so I've had to move on and it's great so uh, whereas Are Douglas, you... basically that's what he did it was a lifetime this one massive idea hmm. yeah which inhabited it because everything else like the gender whatever was it felt like it's part of almost the same universe wasn't it yeah no, mm. and I think that people um there's a lot of respect for Dirk Gently, particularly among you know geeky writers. Mm. Some very good ideas in there, but it didn't take. And it's a little bit like um, Helen Fielding, you know, who's a great friend of both mm. of ours. Bridget Jones is a massive contribution to the culture, which you know will never go away. Those films are just mm. absolutely classic, and they're adored worldwide, and they made her rich and famous. And she had a go at another character. I think there was one yeah. version it didn't really take, and I don't know why. Maybe, maybe if you have got something that's that enormous, I mean, it's like the Beatles. You can't. How can you yes. be better than the Beatles? Yeah. Yes. You know, if you've written Bridget Jones as one of the the all time iconic female characters, I mean, right up there in the pantheon. Why would you want to write another one? It's like I was thinking, if you're if you're Eddie Izzard, and you're the greatest stand up in the world, why would you want to be? a minor film actor because yes. mm. there's so many people who are, who are really good at that mm. whereas nobody's like Eddie Izzard on fire on mm. stage except the grass is always greener isn't it that's the thing is I think there's always a temptation for to sort of almost once, once you start to realise you're good at something you can sort of start, start to despise it and wish you were doing it mm. well I think that yeah again I think that's because people aren't thinking straight mm. because there is only one truth and many ways to it. And if you are lucky enough to have bumped into the truth, the, mm. the great whatever it is, the thing that underlieth all things, mm. um, then why would you want to go anywhere else? Mm. And I think what it is, is that if you haven't thought about life in a philosophical way, and I hadn't when I was working hard in the 80s, I was just trying to get through the week. <laughs> so when you have a success, you think it's something to do with me. I did that. I mean, I used to say, no, I'm... And I'm not a genius or anything, but I do work incredibly hard. And, you know, yeah, I deserve the BAFTA. You think, well, actually, you get old, you think, no, no, that's not right, because it's nothing to do with you, actually. It, it's about, I say, accessing something bigger than you. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're lucky enough to get there, that your only uh, response ought to be gratitude. Mm-hmm. I'm very lucky that happened to me, and that is what I think. It's and so I don't. I think that I don't go around saying, "Yeah, I've done other things than Black Addy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I look. I, you know, I did some commercials and everything. And you, it's rather pathetic when people get to my age and older, and they they deny their greatness because they say, "Well, the, the film I did last year was very good." No, it wasn't it was shit. Yeah. Mm. You haven't done anything. Yeah. You know, mm. since I'm not going to mention names. That'd be cruel. Have actually done anything really worth it since 1989, say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so uh, I think it's. I'm not getting Eddie, who's somebody I really 
really, really respect and like as a person. I think he's an absolute genius. He's a funny, a funny well, I don't know why, you wouldn't, why wouldn't you just amazing. be grateful for what, yeah, yeah. he's just extraordinary. Well, he always had a five-year plan. That's the thing with Eddie. He was very, very determined. Even when it was just sort of starting out in the stand-up world, it was like, you know, this is how I'm going to do it. And he would put on shows in the West End and stuff and that, that this before he was well known and book other comedians to come and play there and they were all disasters and he'd lose loads of money and he but he was at his odds shows yeah and they but he was so he said he knew he said this is how I'm this is my plan this is how I'm going to become a comedian and he was absolutely right in terms of how he was but and all the stuff around it was kind of of all sometimes people are rather taken aback when the plan works. I think that's the other thing. Yeah. I have a friend who became a um, Test Match special commentator, mm. um, which it, within about five years of getting into sports and cricket um, and sport, and he's he's now left. Uh, he's now a, a teacher um, at an independent school mm. because he he assumed it would take him thirty years to be sitting next to mm. Henry Blofeld or whoever, and it took him five, and he was <laughs> rather wrong-footed um, by by getting there so quickly. Mm. Going back to what I was interested, going back to what you're saying about um, about just any kind of rejection that you receive from from anyone within the industry, <coughs> that, that is what our listeners would experience all the time. I still, I'm you know, I'm doing okay, mm-hmm. and my normal experience is rejection, and also here are the notes. Here is where your script is deficient. If how. When you, when you, at what point when you start receiving rejections do you, do you think you realise that this was almost a good thing or something that would get you on to the next thing or how long did it take you to, or, or to basically does every rejection still sting as much as it ever has? Well I, I think if you've read anything I've ever been quoted as saying in the papers you'll know that I think that the broadcasting commissioning system is a complete disaster it's a train wreck and it doesn't work at all and it should be Fixed. I don't know how to do that um, because what you have is a system whereby non-creative people are in charge of the destinies of creative people. And management, you know, commissioners, controllers, people like that, don't speak the same language as we do. Because what creative people are trying to do is do something that's never been done, witness hitchhiker. Everything has, you know, resonance, everything has antecedents and influences, but ultimately... When you do something really fresh, it's that's what Douglas is trying to do. That's mm. what I've tried to do all my life. Trying to do something, you know, the, the the future is a blank space. Like go into this into this as an adventure, trying to find something mm. which has never been seen before. So you're an explorer, mm. um, not just an archaeologist trying to find the mythical source of the Zambezi. Mm. It's not predictable. Creativity never is. Nobody knows where the next technological breakthrough is going to come from or what's going to be in fashion in two years or what people will be eating in ten years Mm. it cannot be predicted and that's what creative people that's the burden they have and the joy of it and managers want predictability Mm. and the only way they're looking at the past all the time they're looking at the spreadsheets and the ratings and saying well people like this and we should do more of that and there's a sort of feeble pretense that this is slightly different because the great British Bake Off obviously work of genius so what about the Great British Pottery Throwdown? Because, it, you know, it's completely original. 
<laughs> except for the title, yes. and except for the fact that although you can't eat it, it's it's not sort of yes. working with something with your hands, which you then film and you have a competition about. You might put it in the oven at some point. So, yeah. so they don't know what they're talking about. That's my mm. experience yeah. almost universally with people who are called executive producing because they have no idea what they're doing and they most of the notes they give are nonsense and they are because it's full of fear and ambition rather than what what people uh, crazy people are doing when they're doing it well is they're in the zone where they no longer take credit for what they do the fingers are automatically writing that mm. you're in flow <coughs> the ideas are coming thick and fast and then you give it to somebody they go oh yeah uh, what a shame because uh, sitcom uh, we did one of those last year and they don't work People don't like sitcom anymore. No, no, what you mean is the sitcom that you got was quite good to start with and you made worse, and then you fiddled about with it and you edited badly as flop because it was a rubbish programme. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that another sitcom is no good. Mm. On the other hand, I mean, I, to, to, uh, to, to look at it from the Commissioner's viewpoint... Um, no, I will not do that. <laughs> I have no, no sympathy with these people at all. It is, it is absolutely. Uh, I'm not saying there are not. I'm not disparaging as people, mm. but I have uh, experienced this a lot in advertising. Is you know the guys are great in the pub, and you can have a fantastic lunch with them, and um, um, good people and nice and all that. They go to work, they put on a different hat. Mm. Which is, you know, oh well, you know, you hear people at very senior levels in broadcasting say, well, it's not up to me. I'm, you know, I'm just the controller. I mean, I'll go and ask some other people what they think. Yeah. yeah. But what do you think? Well, it's not matter. You know, I'm just the head of department. What I think doesn't matter. Mm. It's what matters is what real people think. But you are a real person, aren't you? You yeah, don't yeah. look like a robot. Yeah. That's the worst kind of note I always find is where people say. I don't think people will get this joke. Yes. Yeah. Well, I get it, I get but it, other yeah. people, more stupid, ordinary people, the, the decent, ordinary <laughs> people that we all respect so much, ha ha, uh, wouldn't understand this. I'm, and it I'm, is no. shit. You know, yeah. it's just, it, I get, it's one of the few things that makes me really, really angry because it's such an important thing. Broadcasting is not a game. Broadcasting is where most people get their ideas, their culture, their belief system, their ethics from. Mm -hmm. If that is broken, then the whole country is broken mm. and it needs to be fixed. And particularly comedy, which is a, a, at its best a spreader of joy and mm. fresh thinking and so on. If that isn't any good, it's no good. And we've lost the art. We don't know how to make sitcom. I'm not, I'm, of course, there are honourable exceptions always. There are always honourable exceptions with you know, commissioners who are really good and helpful mm. the guy we've just had on QI uh, Sahel Shah is a terrific guy supportive mm. quick uh, you know never says stupid things of course, of course there, are, there, are, there are those people but the generality of it is that it's because the system is everyone is broken right to the top because the people at the top are overworked because they're being asked to make decisions that should be none of their concern. Mm -hmm. You know, controllers of major channels being asked to opine on the shoelaces of an actress because they, you know, it's micromanaged from the top. So nobody's happy. Yeah. We have a system where basically everyone is not quite getting what they want, including the audience. Mm -hmm. Again, and I'm talking bro broadly about comedy rather than... I know drama's very good at the moment, I think. Just before we move, move yeah. on to, to sitcom, I mean, what, what I was thinking about more was in terms of um, the amount of 
a finite the finite amount of hours that commissioner has uh, to, uh, to at their disposal to offer to new or different ideas. Yeah, but the th- thing is, Dave, uh, and commissioners spend I, the one time know is they say, oh, I've got to see five shows. You don't need to be there. What's mm. the point of having a producer, especially you know a, a show that's as well run as QI has been going for fourteen years? Very nice to see you, but consider it a hobby. You know, if you want to come, drop in by all means. Mm. But we don't need you. You know, a good one, it's a pleasure to see you and have some banter and a drink afterwards. And a bad one is an active irritant. Yes. Just, or just make, like, make everyone slightly on eggshells, yeah. nobody's yeah. quite mm. behaving themselves. And, mm. uh, and, and so, they, 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 again, meetings, one an hour for eight hours a day you know, five days a week, and then you've got to do things at the weekend. People are exhausting themselves for no purpose. Mm. And it is completely different to the way I work. The only reason I've done these five or six good programs is because people left me alone to make my own mistakes and correct them in my own time. Mm. We had very light policing in those days. There were no such people as commissioners. Mm. Executive, I've never had an executive producer until I, uh, until I produced QI. Right. Um, you know, it's a very old joke, though there were some at the BBC in the old days, um, but not so many, perhaps on very big series. And there was an old joke. <laughs> if um, there were a murder at the BBC, who would have done it? And the answer is the executive producer. Why? Well, he must have bloody done something. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the end of podcast 42, and there will be more from John Lloyd in the next podcast. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page, leave us a review on iTunes, or send an email to sitcomgeeks at gmail.com. Until next time, cheerio.